This, this week, next Sunday, is our closing of the books. So if you're able to come, that's sort of how we uh, closed last year, kind of finally do the, the business side of things. So we'll go through kind of uh, some audits. So there a couple people from our community have gone through the books. They'll have some questions. They'll try to make us look bad. Um, no, they won't. Um, it's just to try to, to be transparent and open. So you're all welcome to be here for that. We really need pledge members to be here. Uh, because we have to vote on the closing of books, and we don't want to leave our books unclosed. So, yeah. Please be here. The, the other side of that is, after the closing of the books, and the closing of the books doesn't take very long, like 20 minutes, um, we're going to have a potluck downstairs. So we'd love if you bring food and then stay and hang out and eat with us. It's been a long time since we've done that. So if you can do that, that would be great. Also, April 15th, uh, Tim Alberts is doing a CD release party here. Uh, that's at 7, I believe, 7 o'clock. And uh, generously, Tim is giving the proceeds to the meal program. So that's amazing to Royal City Mission. So if you guys want to come back out and hear Tim play and sing, uh, it, that would be good. It was great at the Beat the Winter Blues, and it will be good again. So you're all welcome to that. It's a pay-what-you-can event. So whatever you can. Got a, a couple weeks left of Job. We're just going to go with Job right to uh, East, East Palm Sunday. So that's this week and next week. So if you're thinking we were closing this week, we thought we were too. But we change a lot. So we've got two weeks left of Job. So here we go with Job. In the beginning, God created all things and said it was good. And the first humans, they were given this beautiful, special place to live and to eat. They were to care for creation, to enjoy it, to participate in it. And there was only one thing off limits. They were not to go to the middle of the garden and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course they ate of the tree. <laughs> I would eat of the tree. You would eat of the tree. Right? They do. And at some level, they gain the knowledge of good and evil. But they don't know what to do with it. Right? So people, we all take this partial knowledge, and then we separate into groups. Because we think that one group over there is evil, and the, our group is good. That's the partial knowledge of the good and evil. Or we separate because of jealousy, which is immediately shown after the fall, by Adam and Eve's children, right? Cain and Abel. Was Cain confused by partial knowledge? Did, did he believe a lie that his offering was not good enough? Did he believe that Cain's was good and his was evil? And we know what happened with Cain and Abel. This, this knowledge of good and evil is a curse. It's our curse, right? It's death to ourselves and to others. And we've used it to kill others. And then we take this partial knowledge that's been used for all terrible things and we try to answer all of life's questions. When something makes our existence easier, we label it good. And when something is, makes our lives or existence harder, we label it evil. No matter what it's doing to those around us. It's very self-focused. But... Doesn't the knowledge of good and evil sound like a good thing? I mean, how do we pray, uh, 
How do we pray, uh, what is that prayer? Everyone knows it. Deliver us from evil. How do we pray deliver us from evil if we don't have knowledge of good and evil? What are you doing here listening to me right now if you're not trying to figure out the knowledge of good and evil? Right, the phrase that kept running around, around my mind this week was being fed. You know, people leave churches because they're not being fed. Or they go to a church because they're being fed. What are they being fed of? Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's kind of comical. It's laughable. The thing that caused original sin has become central in some ways to our lives of faith. And our worship of God is centered around it. For most churches, the sermon, which is sort of like this, I'm not trying to say I'm the tree, but uh, it's centered around this idea of trying to balance out what is good and what is evil. How do we figure that out? It's how many people judge a service or a community. It's so funny. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that phrase, they know enough to be dangerous? I think that's the condition of humankind. Right? We know enough to be dangerous. It's represented in, in the interaction actually in between Adam and Eve right after they sin, right after they eat of the fruit. Right? God calls Adam and Eve and they hide, which is already comical. Hiding from the omnipotent God. Hide and seek is not a fun game with someone who knows where you're hiding. <laughs> right? And if Adam and Eve even had a grasp on good and evil because they ate of the tree, they would know that God's, about God's goodness. They would be able to judge his goodness and know that they didn't need to hide because God's response was love and forgiveness. The, this creation story should catch our attention, right? Um, God calls Adam and Eve and they hide. And God responds after they say, they were hiding because they were naked. He says, who told you you were naked? God points out immediately their inability to judge what is good and what is evil. From the beginning, we have not understood God. It is part of our curse, of the curse of knowledge of good and evil. Limited understanding means that we only catch part of what God is up to, only a small part. And we often take that limited understanding and call it certainty, and then we use it to judge everyone around us. We would do well to remember the question that God asked Adam and Eve. Who told you you were naked? Or who told you you weren't loved? Who told you those people aren't loved? Who told you that was unclean? Who told you? Matthew 13, 24 to 30 is the story of the farmer in the weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field, but that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went out and said to him, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Can you, can you imagine what our pulling of the, the weeds would look like? It actually doesn't take much imagination. Right? It looks like this. It looks like the doctrine of discovery. 
It looks like residential schools. It looks like how we treat the LGBTQ community. Who told you you were naked? In the parable, the workers are sure they know what the weeds and wheat look like. They want to go and pull them out. I wonder if the farmer tells them not to pull the weeds out because of this, because in Jesus' life, we're often shown that those who we think are not acceptable are actually acceptable. And those who we think are not acceptable are actually loved. This is, again, illustrated really well in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee is a religious leader. He's accepted by his people. I don't know if he's loved, but he's accepted by his people. And he knows his worth and shows his disdain for the tax collector over there, who is hated by the people, but knows that he's broken. And it's the tax collector that's acceptable by God. Armed with enough information to make us dangerous, we would pull a lot of weeds and probably a lot of wheat. I know if, if I were to begin pulling weeds, there would be nothing left in the field. Thankfully, the farmer says it's not our place to pull the weeds. And yet the curse is we keep doing it anyway. And then in Job, we see, we see Job's friends struggle with this. They're trying to pull the weeds in Job's life. They're trying to pop them out. And Job's, Job keeps saying, those aren't weeds. But even Job is only armed with limited understanding, right? In Job 42, 5, he says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. It seems like continually true that God shows up in a way that we aren't expecting. Even though Job has rejected the religion of his friends, even though he doesn't fall into scapegoating others or thinking that God has set up karma as the system, even though God says there's no one like Job, Job still expects God to show up in a certain way. Job expects God to answer his questions. But God doesn't show up that way. And he doesn't show up that way in the New Testament when Jesus comes here, right? We see in Jesus', in Jesus ministry, he's asked 183 questions. You know how many he answers? Three. It's a low percentage, <laughs> right? Three out of 183 questions. Unfortunately, we've told people that Jesus has all the answers, and because the Bible points to Jesus, the Bible has all the answers to our questions, and it's simply not true. I mean, this is shown throughout the book of Job that the, the expectation of full certainty of black and white, of surety, leaves us pointing away from God. Just does. While questions, while uncertainty, they keep us humble enough to enter into the conversation with God. I love that our, our writings are like that. That they don't shy away from the fact that even our heroes struggle. And Job 1.8 says... Then the Lord asked Satan, have you ever noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man on all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. It's a pretty big resume. God says, hey, this guy, you've seen him? Check him out. He's called blameless. And yet, Job doesn't grasp God. 
It isn't until he experiences God that he has a better glimpse, right? He understands not in the scientific way then or in the educational way because God doesn't answer his questions. But Job understands in a relational way that God is with him, right? No answers but presence. And Job is changed by presence. I'll read that 42.5 again. I had only heard about you before, but now I see you with my own eyes. I wonder if we can be content with presence. If I'm not able to grasp this, I will probably just keep eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, gaining more and more tools to judge myself and to judge others. I will continually try to take God's place, believing the serpent's promise of becoming more like God, but missing the nearness of the one who is able to handle the paradoxes of good and evil. Scholars aren't really sure what to make of the book of Job, right? They, some think that it must have been written by at least three authors in three different time periods. While others think that it was probably written by Moses during his life, you know, throughout his lifetime, which would account for why there's some differences in the beginning, middle, and end. Isn't it awesome that scholars can't agree on a book that doesn't give solid answers? <laughs> I love that. For me, I would prefer the book to end in chapter 41 if you've been reading through it with us. Chapter 42 ties up everything really nice and neatly. Um, and it seems to support, actually, it seems to go back and support the things that we've been kind of speaking against the whole time, right? About the barter and blame system, about the uh, credit debit system. Let me read to you 42, uh, 10 to 7. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers and sisters and former friends came and feasted with him in his home and they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For he now had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jeminiah, the second Keziah, and the third I'm going to call Karen. In, the land, in all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. Wow. That's wrapped up neatly. You know, I, I tried to imagine Moses writing this down. I'm just taking one scholar's perspective that if, that if Moses wrote it over his lifetime, he, he would have changed as he wrote it. You know, he would have brought his life experience as he, was, as he was writing things down. And this ending could reflect that he simply saw the pattern of life, death, and resurrection that we all see around us. And that there is life after suffering. Job has life after suffering. While chapter 42 focuses on the oxen and the donkey and money and rings and children, beautiful daughters, the moral of this may be more that valuable things are developed through the suffering, through struggle. 
And we know that's true. When we come to James 1, 2 to 4, we read, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of your kind, any kind, come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. For me, the ending is a reminder that we will continue to struggle with this barter and blame system. The author did. He returns to it a little bit. If I just do good, God will give me this. We all struggle with that. If the author of this book comes back to his struggle, then I'm reminded I will also return to that struggle. And I need to be reminded that that isn't what it's all about. The last thing that Job says, or one of the last things that Job says is this, in uh, 42.6. He says, I take back everything, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Doesn't seem all that awesome because it says he's taking everything back. But the translation is funny, and many scholars now say that, that it should be translated more like this. I take everything back, and I find comfort in dust and ashes. That the word for repentance there is a different word used for other things sometimes. So I like this, this translation. I take back everything I said, and I find comfort in dust and ashes. You've probably heard the term dust and ashes before comes up in the Old Testament, and it's always a, comp a comparison phrase, dust and ashes. Uh, Abraham says it, he says in Genesis 18:27, since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. It's a comparison of ourselves to God, I'm but dust and ashes. Dust and ashes are the bits of creation. Finding comfort in these bits is realizing that we aren't God. I find comfort in being creature, not creator. This final word of Job seems to sum up the idea that he just doesn't have all the answers. It reminds us dust and ashes. That's what we are. We don't have all the answers. He doesn't need to pull all the weeds. He isn't responsible for the spinning of the planets or for the expansion of the universe. He's dust and ashes. He encounters God, and he knows who he is. And although he doesn't come away with answers to his questions, he carries the knowledge that God is present in all of the struggle. As a friend of mine said it yesterday, God cries with you. If what God gives us is simply presence and not answers, we don't have to be on the hook for answers to other people. We can just be present. And we see how powerful that is. Right? In the middle of things that you just, there's no, like suffering on a huge scale, right? Like you, you encounter someone's life. There's no answers to why. And to try to tell them why they're suffering. But to sit with them. If, if it's what God gives us, then it's gold for us to give to others. That's my final ending. Anyway, so I won't be speaking on Job anymore, so that's my wrap-up of Job. Uh, let, me, let me pray a blessing on you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace this day and forever. Amen.